Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan, we're going to be joined by Farah Storr, the editor-in-chief of Elle magazine in the UK. Farah is one of the most influential editors around and has moved from top job to top job in her industry in recent years and had a huge impact anywhere she went. In my interview, we chat about her rise to the top, how COVID has changed the media landscape and many other things. Before we hear that, as usual, I'm joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Hi, guys. Now, I hugely enjoyed chatting with Farah. Before I did the interview, I honestly didn't know that much about her. But since the interview, I keep seeing her name and her writings all around me. And I know that lots of people out there have been super excited when we've told them we're interviewing her for this podcast. And she did not disappoint. During our chat, she talked about the importance of clarity and leadership, particularly when things are challenging. We talked about the dangers of hiding the truth from your team or glossing over difficulties. I think we've all experienced uh, working with leaders who are frankly too nice to lead in a crisis, wanting to keep everything positive or allow everyone to have their say. Well, Farah came across to me as someone who says what is needed to be said and has learned over the years how to walk that fine line between, as she puts it, bringing people with you with clear direction in challenging times and having to drag people along with you. Karen, what's your experience of that fine line? I have to say, I really enjoyed Farrah's interview and it's a shame she's an introvert because she's someone I would love to have a drink with. Um, But when it comes to crisis and incident management, I think decisive leadership is critically important. I think good leaders create space to hear different perspectives However, there are times when you need to act decisively and perhaps even without knowing all of the information. And I think another point that Farah made that I really liked is making sure that people understand the gravity of the situation and not sugarcoating it for people. I do think that open and honest approach to communication in difficult times, it leads to better discussions and it leads to better decision making. Now, I think when people go into a situation really understanding the the situation that the organization is facing, they're going to provide you with better formed advice and problem solving. And I think the other benefit is it goes a long way to build trust in a time when you're faced with making really difficult decisions. Do you agree with her, Gary? Yeah, I think there's a difference between being nice and being unwilling to confront the situation in which you find yourself or being unwilling to set a clear direction for the organization in which you're leading. I mean, I think a leader has has that responsibility. And in a crisis situation, that's intensified. And a crucial role of leadership, as we've discussed before, is giving yourself the space to look a little further into the future, to understand where the issue may be heading. In Farah's case, where she's talking about much more of a, a longer term almost change management um, process to understand where you want the organization to go and what strategic decisions need to be made. Now, that requires you to be uh, to be honest, um, to be realistic and to be informed. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a need to be, to be rude or to be difficult. That's not the same thing as being direct. Um, in fact, you could argue that in a, in a crisis situation, the opposite is more valuable. You know, when times are tense and when an organization is going through a difficult 
period, either over a short period of time or a longer term period of change. The leader has a responsibility to show calm and confidence in, in where they're going, not just to the external world, but to internal teams as well. And that's part of the, the battle for bringing people along with you rather than dragging them, as, as Farah mentions in the interview. Thanks, Gary. Right, let's hear what Farah had to say. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with a senior leader, so we get to learn about their crisis experiences and the lessons you need to hear. Our guest on this show is the amazing Farah Storr. Farah is an award-winning editor-in-chief of L UK. She previously held the same position at Women's Health and Cosmopolitan magazine, and she is the author of The Discomfort Zone, a book that looks at how challenge and change can actually unlock creativity and human potential. Originally from Manchester, Farah is an advocate for social mobility and is a member of the government's Social Mobility Commission. Farah has done many, many other things that we don't have time to mention, but needless to say, hardly a year goes by without Farah being one of those people named on the UK's most powerful people lists. Farah, it is brilliant to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, you've had some fantastic roles in the media and beyond. How did you get to where you are today? Oh, wow, we don't have long enough. Um, well, well, we're kind of quite circuitous, actually. I mean, yes, yeah, so I grew up in Salford in Manchester and um, I love magazines. You know, I grew up with J17 and, and Smash Hits, uh, The Face. But I mean, the truth is, I, there were two things really, I suppose, which put me at a disadvantage is that one, I had a very strict Asian father who I kind of had to be a doctor or a lawyer. That was kind of, that was the set template for for me and all my siblings. Of course, none of us since we all work in the creative industries now. And then the second thing was, it didn't even occur to me really, you could get a job on a magazine. And so to cut a very long uh, story short, I've got an older sister, she's 10 years older than me. She became a lawyer. She sort of did the dutiful thing, hated it. And she entered a competition in a magazine. And, you know, these things do exist. And I think it basically just said, write us a piece that you would want to be published in a magazine. And you, I think the prize was a date with two male models and some work experience. And so I remember very vividly that my sister, she won. She was 24. She went down to London to do the work experience. And she came back and... I think it just completely sort of turned her head, really. Um, a, that there were these, if you were creative, there was a good career to be had in in women's magazines. But also that there was this whole other world. And actually, the key for us to unlock this other world of journalism didn't lie in Manchester, actually. It, it lay, unfortunately, at the other end of the country, which is London. And so she was very helpful. I mean, actually... She did the work experience and then a year later she she left the law and got a job on a magazine. And I mentioned that because what she did to me was she was hugely instrumental in telling me all these steps about how you make it into the media. And there are a number of steps and there are all these codes that nobody tells you about unless you have someone on the inside. And so she was like, look, you need to get yourself down to London. You'll be expected to, to do a whole load of free work experience and then if you're lucky, you might get a job. And so I was just really, um, once I got rejected from Oxford, I was then very, very pragmatic 
And what I did was I decided to go to a London university and I figured out that actually if I could do enough work experience while I was a student, then perhaps I wouldn't have to do these years of unpaid internships, which I knew I couldn't afford to do. And that's what I did. I I basically used my time at university, not so much to get a degree, but to do work experience and get spotted in magazines. And, you know, 24, I got a job on a women's magazine and it was kind of from there, really. I love the way you sort of say that in such a matter of a fact way. But you, what you've really talked about there is overcoming a number of barriers that people face up to in life and don't always overcome, whether it's a slightly blinkered outlook from where you are, which was at home in Manchester and not seeing the opportunities elsewhere, whether, as you said, it's the unpaid uh, work experience or internships, which don't really enable people to break into industries unless they're from a certain background. And you had real focus there to do that. What was the drive though behind that? There must be more to it. I think it's a whole combination of things, isn't it? I mean, for me, a couple of things. I mean, my dad is probably the most driven individual you will find sort of to comical levels. So there was definitely a template there of a kind of an unblinkered focus, actually. I also think, you know, I did a lot of sports when I was younger. I was a, an athlete. I was a 100 meter sprinter. And, you know, that sport, as you know, is all about focus and it's also about a real focus on being on individualism about you've only got yourself to rely on and it's not so much about the team it is about you alone and it's such a sort of short distance as well you have to be completely focused on the sort of on the finish line and I suppose that's what I have always done throughout my career which is and I I say this to other people is don't get bogged down in the small stuff find that sort of tunnel of light where you're heading to and be very, very clear on what that looks like. Because then when all the other stuff, the crises and the difficult stuff happens, that's what keeps you going. And I think in 100 metres, I could never do the long, I could never do sort of even sort of 200 metres. was too far, couldn't see the finish line. But with 100 metres, there's something about seeing that beacon of light and just having tunnel vision. So I think, I mean, probably a therapist would have a lot to say about that. But I do think, honestly, it played a massive role. So when you get the bit between your teeth, you're on it. But does that, look, you talked about being rejected by Oxford. I mean, is there a healthy chip on your shoulder here to say, right, I've been rejected. I am going to show these people that what I can do. Did that actually help you, do you think, with your drive or did it hinder you? I think it was a little stumbling. I mean, it was all I'd ever wanted, you know, and, and it was really very much to make my father proud and actually didn't really care in the end. But it was all I had ever wanted was to go to Oxbridge. Don't know why. I think for me, it sort of, I held it in complete reverence. And of course, when I didn't get in, I was completely winded, like completely winded for about six months. But yeah, after that, I think what it did for me was it was like, look, I'm not going to use it as an excuse. I'm just going to power on through and find another way and and it's funny isn't it and it's stupid really but I remember when I went to speak at and this sounds very grand but it's not supposed to but when I went to speak at the Oxford Union there was there was something about it It was like you bastards never let me in but here I am but yes I think the uh, sort of the the serious answer to your question is yeah and and I personally, I think there's probably a lot of genetics to do with it as well. I think I've always been good at if there's a knockback, I pick myself up pretty quickly and I use it as a sort of force really for for personal good. 
It's, I, I sort of find it really interesting reading about you and listening to stuff you've done elsewhere because obviously you you talked about your your dad Pakistani background and then you're moving into the media world and you you sort of make assumptions don't you about what people think of you and what they're saying about you and you know their their, their general viewpoints and then you act maybe slightly differently but some see that as a bad thing, but sometimes that can really drive people forward to try and change minds and to go beyond and work harder and to be better than everyone else. And I sorry, I started my career in politics and, you know, going in with all the posh kids working in politics for me from Northern Ireland was really interesting. My accent changed a little bit accordingly, you know, and all of that, but that definitely drove me on. But did it really drive you on? I mean, in the hindsight, do you look at it and think, I'm glad, I'm really pleased that that I was different? I think, well, of course, at the beginning, as you've just mentioned, you don't want to be. You want to desperately to assimilate. But but actually, yeah, I mean, I was supposed to have got rid of this northern accent a long time ago, but I, just, but I just didn't have time. And you know why I didn't have time? Because I think the biggest thing for me, and people often say this to me, they go, oh, do you think you've been a victim of racism? Do you think you've been a victim of, of um, gender bias? And the honest answer I can give, and, and I like to think it's helpful, is that it may have been the case. We will never know. But the most useful thing you can do is almost sort of block that out and go, I am going to be so undeniable that you cannot deny me this opportunity. And so for me, the, the honest truth is, Gavin, I do not know if I faced all of these things because I was different. Probably. But I tried not to think about it too much. Um, I was more concerned on sort of, I'm going to be the best person that you've ever seen and I'm going to make it so difficult for you to turn me down. And I I tend to think it's quite a helpful, I think it's quite a helpful attitude to have because ultimately you can't control what other people think. You really can't, but you can control yourself. And um, yeah, look, I think it all goes back to the athletics. It's all about the individual. What can you do to change your destiny? And for me, it was just be amazing. Well, I love that. Now, you did change your destiny and you uh, became the launch editor of the Women's Health magazine. And under your direction, it became the most successful women's magazine launch of the decade. Um, But even saying that glosses over the challenges you face behind the scenes, doesn't it? It wasn't all a bed of roses, was it? No, no, it wasn't. And, And actually, I probably should never have had that job. I mean, I was, I think I was my early 30s. And uh, I just moved back from Australia. I'd been living in Australia. I'd moved back, um, had a period of sort of terrible freelance, really not earning any money at all. And I heard on the grapevine, again, as sort of tends to unfortunately happen in the creative industries, that there was this job going. And so I threw my my hat in the ring. And um, lo and behold, I was offered the job very, very quickly. Sort of yeah, it, it, it's quite interesting that I was offered the job so quickly. And of course, it turned out that they had had another editor, proper editor. I was completely um, untested, who had walked out. Because the thing is, with Women's Health, it was launched in, uh, I think it was like the November of 2012. Very, very difficult time for magazines. Digital revolution was coming. People didn't think, I think somebody once said, we don't see a future. It was a different publishing company. We don't see a future in wood-based publications um, so that kind of sets the scene wow. of, of what pe- yeah of what people thought about magazines and yet the company that hired me said look we we want to take a chance we think there is an opportunity for this is before wellness was huge 
but we need to be really, really cautious and we don't want to take many risks. And so here's what here is what the deal is. We're going to give you a chance to be an editor. We're going to give you two members of staff. You've got six weeks to turn it around and create the brand from scratch because the previous editor are sort of looking for what they'd done. And I think there was like one sheet of paper. And they were very, very honest, which what blunt, but honest, which was, you know, if we don't sell a hundred, I think it was a hundred thousand copies from that very first issue, then the reality is we're probably not going to launch it. And actually what I should say is I had got, I did have a job at that point. It was quite a well-paid job I'd sort of fallen into. I didn't love it, but it was well-paid. And there was this risk of become an editor. It's what you've always wanted. But if it doesn't work out and the chances were it was probably not going to work out, then I was going to be out of employment. So, yeah, it was very hard. And actually those six weeks were incredibly difficult because we had no money, no time. We were all pretty inexperienced. It was me, a designer and a, and a picture person and an intern. We were woefully out of our depths. But a sort of magic sort of happened over those six weeks in that the challenges, I suppose, that we were faced with were the things that ultimately made us create a very different product because we produced something that we, in our heart and in our gut, we knew was brilliant. But I think if we had been furnished with huge teams and huge budgets, we would have done everything the same as everybody else. And we would have canvassed for opinions and got watered down ideas and yeah I think without doubt the huge constraints that that uh, business or that brand was set up with was the very thing that actually made it the success in the end. It seems to me that throughout your life you have taken where you are or what you're being asked to do and made not only the best of it but gone above that and it's definitely true with women's health because you are a self-confessed perfectionist, aren't you? Yet you were thrown into the mix here um, with small budget, small team, short deadlines, and yet you turned it round. That must have been difficult, though, a real learning experience. Well, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because I suppose I'm sort of two contradictions, really. One is I'm obsessed with having vision, but often visions are sort of big, sort of um, hazy things. And actually, I'm also very detail orientated, perfectionistic to sort of the point of where a comma goes. And actually, when I look back on my career, I think the first time I was a leader, I was too blindsided by the small stuff. And actually, the perfectionism can really get in the way of, of the big stuff. And definitely, as I've got older, and I'm in my third editorship now, I worry a little less about the sort of the 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 tiny I'll still always be obsessed with detail but the teeniest details I've got to let it go I have to trust other people to do it um but you know I I do think there is a lot of leaders who go you, you can't sweat the small stuff and the reality is you are born a certain way and so when people tell you not to do something and it's your instincts it's very difficult so it is very hard for me to let things go but you just learn and also I think with age um, and when you've done it for a while, you realise actually that um, the small stuff, I mean, it does accumulate to making the, the big success, but you've got to leave it to other people. And you, you know, you have to. Did I answer your question? No. No, you did. No, you did. And it also made me smile because I think it was Helmut Schmidt, the former German statesman, said, who said something like, anyone who has visions should go to the doctor, um, which always makes me laugh. But I think you need both. You're right. And you need to be able to, but you do learn as you get older, how to delegate, how to leave more freedom for teams to grow, which is important. Now you moved from women's health 
the Cosmopolitan in 2015. And again, you had tremendous success at that title, making it the number one UK women's glossy magazine. But again, it wasn't easy, was it? You faced really difficult headwinds. Some would say at times the organization was in crisis. Is that true? Well, I think they hired me because of what had come before. So I think actually there is a link between the two. Um, It's not that difficult situations follow me. I think the CEO at the time who asked me to take on Cosmo had seen that I was capable of navigating extreme change. Um, And actually that I dealt pretty well under pretty big pressure. And yeah, Cosmo was... um, it was a different scenario, but it was pretty much the same, which was turn it around, you've got six months. But what it had, Cosmo, which Women's Health didn't have, was it had a very delicate human um, aspect to it, which was it was a very big team. And the previous editor, somebody I, I love, I, I admire very much, um, you had a team who were incredibly loyal to her. They're a very tight-knit team. They had been there a very, very long time. And then suddenly I came in. And I had to have a very strong vision and I had to enact it very quickly. And yeah, uh, you know, I think it was about 70% of them left within three months. You know, they sort of voted with their feet, which was this individual or maybe this vision isn't for me and, it, and it's time to leave. And and so that was a very different sort of crisis on a personal level, I suppose. You're always told don't take things personally, but when you're a leader and you're walking into a room and saying good morning to everyone and nobody puts their head up. You've got to take it personally, actually. And you've got to reflect on that, that you're probably doing something wrong. Not always, but but it's more than likely. So yes, it was a crisis in a, in, in a, in a different way. Because I think what happened is, yes, Cosmo went on and, and those that remained, because we we had a small knot of people who remained and they were cynical. And my job was to change their mind about what sort of leader I was. And, and I did and, and very close friends with, with all of those people now. But I think what I learnt was I may have been a good leader on paper and I, and I was able to have sort of an exacting vision of what brands should be. But I probably, when I look back on my time, I don't know how good a manager I was, if I'm honest. I, I think there should have been more care more communication and so when I moved on to L which was a sort of slightly slightly similar it was one of the things that I vowed which is you know when a crisis happens it's not all about sort of the bottom line and 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 um, how you lead it's also about the people and taking them along not dragging them along and and I think about it a lot I, I sometimes think with Cosmo there may have been a bit of dragging and of, put, and of course there's resistance there from people with L we didn't have the same thing people didn't leave so I think as I have grown and, and, you know, it's a good thing, but I think each leadership you have, certainly for me, I've been a different leader in, in each situation and each of them have had their own crises and I have reacted to them differently. It's, it's really interesting because not many people talk about the trauma leaders have in difficult situations and the personal angst which they experience. And in those situations where you are making personal assumptions of what people think about you. And I, in your book, you talk about how you were in a glass box in the middle of a cosmopolitan newsroom, in effect, and uh, everyone's looking at you uh, for what you're doing. And that's tough. But there's a lot of people also who will be casting blame on you as a leader for what you're changing. And I know you've spoken about your time as a mentor in Britain's next top model of how your belief is to tell it like it is, uh, even if it upsets someone. But 
has that sometimes led to people throwing it back at you? I think the culture has changed for the better now as well. I still believe, though, that the most... I think it's a delivery thing, actually. I think I think I still am very blunt. I think I do still tell people. I mean, I do. I, I famously tell my team more than they need to know. And I tell them the sort of bold, stark truth. But I have to say, it's A, it's in the delivery of how you deliver that. But also, there is something about... Uh, two things. There's something about a leader who can express how difficult things are. Because people trust you. I've never trusted those leaders who have big smiles and say everything's fine. Because... You just know that's not the reality. The other thing that it does, I have found in my experiences, you, you you tell a team how difficult it is and what happens is something changes and that the kind of, I'm going to talk in terrible business cliche now, but the structure naturally starts to become flat because what they do is, certainly I have found this with creative teams. I imagine it's the same with other teams. They go, brilliant, we're all in this together now. And, and that's what happened with the remaining sort of folk at, Cosmo is I was like look this at the end I was like this is really hard this is what we've got to do and there was a real bonding together by knowing that we had these big obstacles in front of us and in a way it was the same at women's health I was very honest about how hard things were I suppose what I do do is when I'm very blunt with people and I tell them the truth I don't just deliver it like that I do try to give them my perspective on how we can change things and I also try and tell people you know, it is going to be really difficult. But actually, and this is where they have to have faith in me as a leader, and not just faith, I can give them examples throughout my career, they have to have faith that actually human beings work incredibly well when they're carrying a load. That's just the reality. The things that we're most frightened of, they actually are the most transformative events. And my worry has always been that actually, and, and, and if I'm honest, I do worry a little bit about the culture at the moment with that, which is this, you know, just avoid those things that you are afraid of. You know, that's the best thing you can do is avoid them and protect yourself. I've always thought that actually the reality is crises are everywhere, you know, whether they're personal or professional or they are everywhere and they are going to come for you. And so the best thing you can do is not pretend that they don't exist. You acknowledge that they're there and they're everywhere and you come up with a plan and then you get stronger as a result of that and you unlock your potential and you discover amazing things about yourself when you are confronted with very difficult situations. You discover huge weaknesses, which is also a really good thing, but you also discover strengths you never knew you had. And I know I'm monologuing you now, but I've just thought in all of my sort of all the roles I've had, it might come across as blunt, but in the bluntness, there's kind of a sort of a philosophy for life that I worry people are perhaps moving away from a little bit. Yeah, well, it's clarity. It's an absolute understanding of what you want. And if people don't deliver that, then we've got problems. It's uh, I think sometimes we can be we can spend so much time trying to be nice that things can get confused. And that is an issue, I think. And I think that's when organizations face difficulties. Can I just ask you though, on a personal basis, when you are, for instance, in Cosmo in the early days, when it was difficult, and obviously you had huge success there ultimately, but when it was difficult and you were facing personal, you were, you were making personal assumptions um, and it, people were looking at you and putting pressure on you. How did you get away from all that? How did you take a moment to sort of step back from it? What did you do? 
Well, you know, it actually coincided interestingly because I'm not a um, I'm not a massively sociable person. I'm very introverted, believe it or not. Um, I interestingly, it's a terrible cliche, but I, I took to my garden. We had just moved house. We had this massive wreck of a, a garden, and for me, that's what I did. And and there are two things why it really helped. One was gardening you're in flow so so actually you can drown out the noise but also gardening is constant crisis you know it's constant death of plants it's 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 crisis resolution the whole time that is what the garden is about and so on some level I think what gardening has helped me do it's helped me sort of understand that 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 is just the order of things and it doesn't make it any less difficult by the way I mean I I think the thing is with with leaders, particularly in corporations, and look, I have done this myself over the years, believe you me, is you think the leader is a robot and you think they are the corporation. And so it's sort of fine to throw your, you know, sort of spears and arrows at, at the leader. But of course, as you get older, you realise that they they are, they're just trying to do their job, actually. But, and, and it hurts, you know, it does hurt, um, particularly when people leave, because what it shows is a lack of, uh, lack of belief. But the thing is, I think as I've got older, how I deal with it now is I do take it less personally, because of course, there are a thousand different reasons of why people are choosing to leave. And it's not as simplistic as there is a lack of belief in the leader. There are so many things going on. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's it's very true. Now, you've written a brilliant book called The Discomfort Zone, in which you encourage readers to live fierce, fierce, fearlessly. Sorry. Uh, now, I'm in the middle of this book, and I can heartily recommend it to anyone listening here. There are loads of engaging stories and learnings for everyone, including business leaders, not least the sections when you talk about throwing yourself into public speaking opportunities. But what caused you to write that book? What was the moment you thought, I need to put this down on paper? Well, I I wrote it when I was, um, I think I was about a year into editing Cosmo. And of course, Cosmo's bread and butter is young women. Uh, You know, it's sort of late teens, early 20s. And this was uh, like 2015, 2016. And I suppose it was a cultural thing, really. I, I sort of you know, my job as a journalist and editor is to look at the culture and dissect it and see what's going on, but also to look at the long-term ramifications of the culture. And at that time, rightly or wrongly, by the way, it was sort of, you know, you had sort of safe spaces on campuses and there were sort of lockdowns on free speech and, you know, everyone was going through sort of, everyone was sort of coming away from Twitter because they didn't like what they were reading. And there was all of this stuff bubbling up. As, and as an editor, your your job really is to look what's in the ether and sort of make sense of it. And so I was seeing all of this. And of course, there's a lot of well-meaning and good stuff in that, by the way. But what I wasn't seeing was any sort of alternate narrative, which is, hang on a minute, guys, that's definitely a way um, to live your life. Uh, remove yourself from difficult situations and difficult dialogue. If you choose to do that, it's totally fine. But I didn't think there was any, I couldn't find anything. Um, I think there was a Jonathan Haidt book, that that was the only thing. There wasn't anything else, particularly speaking to young women, which was about, hang on a minute, there is another way. And the other way is, you are made for this. And actually, those difficult conversations and those difficult scenarios, you don't remove yourself from them. You have a voice and, and you challenge. And so that's really where where it came from. It, I didn't have the time to write it, often didn't have the inclination, but it was just a feeling of 
it's just a sort of helpful manual. It's a different way for, it was a different way for, it's not a gender thing, but for me at the time, for young women to think. But you, you, you said earlier, you're an introvert, but yet there's quite a lot of personal details about your feelings, emotions in major situations in your life in it. Yeah, well, I'm an introvert in the sense of, well, well, introverts write, don't they? They watch and they write and they listen in. I've always believed that journalism, you have to be vulnerable. That That's the point. Otherwise, you're not really, I mean, you're given this platform. So you should probably write about, I always make a sort of deal with myself, write about what people, others won't write about. And I suppose in that sense, I'm not an introvert on the page, but in real life, you know, you won't find me at parties. You know, I, I have about two friends. I'm very solitary. I live in the middle of nowhere. That's just my natural disposition. Of course, I've had to over the years, probably for the job, sort of ape extra, you know, being an extrovert. There is definitely be an element of that, which will, of course, seeped into me. Um, but on the, but on the, I'm probably an extrovert on the written page in that I give a lot of myself. And that's the way that I feel for me, it works. Now, do you think businesses should be living more in the discomfort zone that you talk about in your book uh, when they're facing up to challenges to make themselves stronger? So my, a lot of the time in our world, we help organizations identify the gaps in reputation terms between what they say and what they do. And often they don't want to go there because it's, they're, they're, not, they're, they're slightly uncomfortable because they're difficult things. Do you think businesses should sort of follow your mantra of the book for themselves as well it's not just personal it's business related yeah I mean more than individuals in a way I mean businesses absolutely should and actually if businesses do that individuals will follow you know they have to do that um, nobody expects business to be this place of sort of cheery smiles and you know spar- sparkle dust they're hard places and you have to make hard decisions and also if you really care about your business you want that business to last forever um you know so someone like um ritz i I can't remember his name now the chap that that started the ritz hotel business that business is the same as it was when he started it you know over 100 years ago but that's because lots of difficult decisions had to be made and if you want your business to survive for hundreds of years longer you've got to make the difficult decisions and they're going to stand you in really good stead because, of course, as a business, once you start making the difficult decisions, it's it's the same theory, which is you're going to discover massive flaws in your business and also massive strengths. And as a business, you have to look inwards. And actually, I would personally say all businesses go on about, here's our strengths. This is what we're famous for. I actually think leaders should be obsessing about what their flaws are, either so they can build up and change or, and, and, and I the older I get, the more I think about this, actually, the more that they can sort of, if if they choose to, they can swerve it. You know, there are a lot of businesses who try to do everything and it's like, just do what you are brilliant at. But the problem, of course, is people, some businesses, they don't know what they're really bad at. They assume they're brilliant at everything. And that's that whole sort of leadership of everything is brilliant. We're amazing. I think some leaders believe that's what you have. That's the sort of coach you have to put on so everyone will follow you. And actually, I'm not sure that's the truth. You talked about fish's waters, and I suppose a lot of that's digitalization. Uh, is that a crisis for quality, glossy magazines? Could be a crisis. Yeah, could be. Could very easily be. I mean, when I joined Cosmo, 
yeah I mean I, I mean when I looked at the landscape so it's like oh my god once upon a time it was a magazine and you had this captive audience and they they read everything that you put in the magazine and then suddenly from out of nowhere or you know sprung up all these different voices and they were free it was a real worry for me especially this doesn't happen so much anymore but a couple of years ago do you remember everyone was doing sort of listicles and of course what that did for a whole generation was they started to read differently and and actually at Cosmo I made the decision we sort of the world was sort of going digital and actually what we did with print because we we had a very successful website at the same time but I wanted to make sure the two were very different they are not the same and they are not always most of the time they are not the same audience but actually there is a place there is a massive opportunity because for Cosmo when I joined, the average reader was sort of um, mid-30s, but actually what we had was a lot of very young girls, and we also had some of those Cosmo loyalists who were probably, you know, they were boomers, so they're in their 60s. Digital, it was all um, it was all Gen Y, it was all millennials. And of course, when you're taking over a business, what usually people say is, go after the young people. Nobody cares about the old people. They go, go after the young people. That's the emerging market. And actually, I thought, hang on a minute, there is a massive opportunity here because actually you can keep both. And so what we did in, in Cosmo is we we started running way, way, way longer features. I mean, we became obsessed with long form journalism because it was the thing that digital was not and could not do. It's sort of quite hard even now to sustain reading 4,000 words on a screen. Um And we did the very opposite and actually sales spiked. So I see it as an opportunity. The other way I have to say digital has been a huge friend, certainly to me and my teams, is, you know, once upon a time when you're putting a magazine together, you come up with ideas through what a friend at the pub saying or, you know, you came up with them locally or you looked at local newspapers. And that is dangerous for a number of reasons. One, because you're only getting stories of people who are like you. And also there's not a lot of stories. But actually, social media, particularly Instagram, is basically your way of looking at the world. And, 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 and Twitter is the same. And seeing all these voices and all these experiences. And if you are a good journalist, what your job is, is to link them all and start to see patterns. And so digital, for me, has become an amazing way um, as a leader to look for patterns in the sort of cultural ether my job then is to sort of package them and sell them on. So I suppose in a very long-winded way, I am telling you, digitalization I have seen as nothing but friend rather than foe. And and it can be that way. It sounds to me, Farah, you just make an excuse for sitting on your phone at night uh, <laughs> looking at Twitter here. No, no, no look, um, has COVID affected how you tell stories as a title? Has it had any impact? Whether is it Does it make them more regional? Does it make them wider is it sort has there been a push away from london in your sort of approach i mean is london cool anymore well covid has exacerbated everything but actually when i joined l i mean look we are a fashion magazine so our whole you know most of our job is about trends it's about you know fashion is always about being 20 steps ahead of everyone else and i've always believed I mean, we were just talking earlier about, you know, Manchester in the sort of 80s and 90s. Actually, the regions, there are re- there is really cool underground stuff going on. But actually, my my feeling was, was that as a fashion magazine, and actually, it's mainly magazines in general, because we're all based in London, right? Um, what I wanted to do was sort of break that up a bit and have 
there's a thing on magazines where, um, and I never felt quite right with this. I always thought it was a bit silly, actually, is that when you join a magazine, you sort of get a debrief of this is who the woman is and this is where she lives and this is what she buys and this is who her friends are. And I used to think, God, this is such crap. Like, this is just not true. And actually, I used to love men's magazines for the fact that when you turned a page, it was all different voices. And so when I joined Dell, I was really keen on getting out to the regions, shooting fashion stories on the streets of Salford or Liverpool, because there is really cool stuff happening out there. You know, real scenes, Sheffield, a lot of people moving back there, by the way. So London is still cool, but actually my feeling is it is moving to the regions. The other reason, of course, is when I joined Dell and exacerbated by COVID is this need for a fashion magazine you know, luxury needs to level up in the same way. It, it needs to. I think people sometimes think that, you know, if you're if you're living in Salford, you're not interested in Cartier or Vuitton. Of course you are. So we have done a lot of work on, yes, working with sort of photographers across the country, doing fashion shoots across the country, but also getting younger people more involved in L. And what COVID has allowed us to do, we did a massive mentorship program, which we're redoing this year. I, my, my dream for Elle was always to take the September issue, which is the big fashion, it's the big historically big issue of the year, was to take it and sort of put it together in schools across the country. That's what I always wanted to do before I even got the job. That was my thing. I just thought it'd be cooler. It'd be more interesting. And then when we were about to do that, COVID happened. And so it would have been easy to go, do you know what? We're just going to have to shelve that one. But actually, we didn't. We decided to go ahead with it. Look for these sorts of young, I was going to say young stars, but it wasn't stars we were looking for. We were looking for young school kids across the country who had potential. And what COVID did, because everybody was used to working remotely, we could reach corners of the UK that actually, if we'd have done a sort of taking L to schools across the country, we wouldn't have got to the corners of Bradford or Oldham or, you know, or Sunderland. And and actually, we were able to do that. And as I said, now that mentorship program, it's living again this year. It's just really opened our eyes to actually, you know, if you work in the media, you've got to represent the entire country. And not just because it's the right thing to do. It makes really interesting content really does for a fashion magazine you know you should be looking at what people on the street in um oldham are wearing like that that, that's what you should be doing you look to the street for fashion yeah so know your audience and know your potential audience as well which is that's it all businesses should be doing now um anyone who's listening to this and anyone who's read anything you've written will know you're a very considered person despite being driven by your gut in a lot of situations you take time to reflect on things and you're very good at considered thought uh, post events um is that because you keep a diary does it force you to reflect on things in the immediate aftermath i do keep a diary i don't update it as often as as i should sadly but i do keep a diary i think i keep a diary yes to reflect but also it's a really good reminder of when you look back of who you were and you start to see the growth that you've done. And even if it's just for your own satisfaction, it's a really wonderful thing to see. And, and you know, if you ever do have those mortifying sort of personal moments where people are leaving your company or, I don't know, you have a difficult conversation and a colleague tells you something that perhaps you'd rather not hear, you can look back on a diary and you can see 
actually the place that you've come from. And I think people are not always, I'm not very good at looking back, actually. I'm always moving forward. But a diary allows me to look back and remember um, what things used to be like. And, and through doing that, you start to chart progress. And, and I think, you know, that's, for me, success, the whole idea of success and it being an end point doesn't really interest me. It's the progress towards it. And of course, when you get to the top, I'm less interested. It's that grind. Someone once said, you know, it's the grind. The beauty is in the grind. And once you get to the top, you look back and you see the hard steps to get there and you realize that was the juicy bit. That was the good bit. And diaries are a bit like that. When you're reading back, you realize all the stuff you thought was really hard. That was the good stuff. And so it helps you when things are hard again to realize you've been there before um, and you'll be there again and that you get through it. And not only that you get through it, that actually that's sort of where the magic happens in a way. It's really interesting because that takes us right back to the start, because in elite athletics, they tell you not to focus on the outcome, to focus on the process. And that's really what you're talking about here, which is a great lesson for any leader listening. Farah, thank you for joining us today in White Swan. You've been a fantastic guest and I really appreciate you giving up your time. Thanks very much. Farah was such a good person to chat to. I hope you enjoyed her interview as much as I did. I'm again joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK to talk about what we just heard. So Karen and Gary, Farah and I chatted about how tough it can be at the top in challenging times and the pressure that's often put on leaders. She talked about how gardening allows her to put things in order, and something I'm also a fan of, uh, and also made the point that leaders aren't robots and that sometimes people need to remember that and give them a chance. But how tough is it for leaders who are literally in the firing line during a crisis, Gary? And what can they do to get through? Well, yeah, of course, uh, it, it is tough and it touches on a, a number of things that we've discussed before. Um, on this podcast, I, I think that the CEO, the editor, the leader um, is inevitably the, the focal point of an organization, as, as Farah talked about. But the fact is that a serious incident or a serious program of change can't be handled by one person. Um, and if any one person who is leading um, a serious incident or trying to deal with it 24-7 for any period of time, they will burn out. And it comes back to what Farah talked about, about you know, has she you know, learnt in her own career the extent to which you focus on and sweat the small stuff versus the extent to which you focus on the objective and the goal of, of where you're heading. Um, so in terms of what you can do, firstly, it's coming back to that clear understanding of, of your role um, in the crisis. What are you here to do as a leader? Um, and we've talked repeatedly about the fact that, you know, at the very top of the organisation, it makes more sense to create space to look at where the situation is going rather than being in the nuts and bolts of the immediate tactical response. But if you're able, going to be able to do that, then second, you need to be able to trust uh, your crisis team or your management team. And that's not something you can just do. Uh, so you need to be confident by testing your team, by testing your crisis response protocols, and then you can have the confidence that they're going to work and you can get on with what you're supposed to be doing. And then the final point I would make is Again, making sure that the little details are taken care of. Make sure that particularly if it's a short-term, 
24-7 incident that you're dealing with. There are people on hand to ensure there's food, to ensure there's water, to ensure that the room is clean if you're established a hub, to ensure that you're monitoring people's breaks and just make sure that as far as possible, you're able to build in that routine that gives everyone the chance to have a rest, to get some exercise, to eat properly, um, because that's what's going to make you more effective in that incident response. And do you agree with that, Karen? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, when I was reflecting on on this question, <clears throat> you know, I've been on the front lines of some of the most significant natural disasters we've had in Canada in recent memory. Uh, you know, literally, we're talking about those life and death situations where people are making decisions about evacuations and which communities they can save and which they can't. And when I think about those incident responses, there are definitely some common characteristics of good leaders um, and how they manage through through those situations. And I think the most important one was, you know, they put people first. And so they really focused on and prioritized the safety. And as you were in the incident response, and in some cases in dangerous situations, you really felt that they cared for the people that our safety um, came first in the response. You know, they were concerned about doing the right thing for everyone. And exactly like Gary said, the other two things, and a lot of times this does get overlooked, I think, in incident response. Uh, but being very mindful, as Farah said, that we're human, that we're not robots. And as these incidents, some of them can be like 24-7, really important that they're adequately staffed um, and scheduling is in place so that people can get those breaks that they need to recharge. Um, and then the at, the at its basic level, ensuring your basic needs are met. And so it's so important to make sure that people have are fed, that they have hydration and that they are getting the rest that they can do um, so they can do their best work. So I guess I agree with Gary in this case. Those are great points to make. And I think just reflecting on that, it's so important that good leaders have good counsel around them during difficult times and are taking advice from the right people. And reflecting on that really, really made me think of Tom Brady. I'm very lucky to have worked at several Super Bowls. And while at one a few years ago, I read about how the legendary quarterback Tom Brady used a self-help book to help him prepare better. Now, anyone who knows me will know I'm not the type of person who reads a lot of self-help books, but this is a guy who seems to get most things right. Brady's won the Super Bowl a record seven times, and he's also married to Giselle, the Brazilian supermodel, so he seems to have life pretty well sorted. And the book he relies on for his advice is by a guy called Don Miguel Riez. It's called The Four Agreements, A Practical Guide to Personal Freedom. It advocates a code of conduct to free you from self-limiting beliefs. And the agreements that Brady follows are purposely simple. Be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally, which is a lot easier to say and harder to do. And always do your best. And importantly, given what Farah and I discussed, don't make assumptions. These struck me as beautifully simplistic because Riaz focuses in on what we can control instead of wasting energy on the things we can't. And Farah seems to have got to that place in her leadership when she talked about not taking things personally, even when that is a very difficult thing to do for a leader. Now, I don't think many of us could follow the physical training or the nutrition that Tom Brady does on a daily basis. I certainly couldn't. But maybe we can all follow some of the mental training that he puts in place to avoid the things that limit our ability to lead in life, especially in not making assumptions. And those lessons might just put us at the top of our respective games, just like Brady. 
So I think that's a good place to end this podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing from one of the most impressive editors out there. Until next time, thank you for listening to White Swan, the crisis podcast, and stay safe. White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com.